the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Oh wow! Yeah, that was. I'm transferring some some video, some uh, audio here from vinyl. Oh yeah, I had the control room mic up. Uh, huh. You good to go? Yeah, sure. We can go ahead. I just gotta figure out how to do what I thought I was doing. Hmm. Anyway, yes, go ahead. Continue <laughs> as you were. As we were. Yeah. So I'm finding there are two problems with life under quarantine. What is that? You you tell me if if this is a problem for you too. First of all. Under quarantine now, suddenly there are a lot of household projects that require heavy lifting. <laughs> yeah. And two, I start losing track of the days of the week. Oh, yeah. I spent most of the day lugging around those giant ornamental landscaping rocks to build a new flower bed for the front of the house. Oh, really? So, of course, every muscle in my body is killing me. But it was it was wrap time at five o'clock, and I celebrated not with one, but with two martinis in the interim, and then looked down at my phone and went, "Oh look, I've got to do a podcast suddenly." <laughs> yeah, I had no idea it was the day it is. Really? Are you not finding this as a problem? No, no. I I listen. I know that it is Saturday when suddenly my workload lightens up. And I'm not getting as many emails as I usually would during the week. I also know that Saturdays and Sundays are longer than Monday to Friday for me. Why is that? Because you can't go out and do anything on on Saturday and Sunday like we used to. Mm. So it they just drag by. I, uh, I I got up this morning and read the newspapers, watched some TV, uh, did some work in the office, went for a run, uh, came back, had a shower, had a nap read some more newspapers and it was still only three (laughs) o'clock isn't it funny how your perception of the value of a nap evolves dramatically between like zero to 20 and then 20 to 40 yeah exactly all right stand by here we go From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. COVID-19 and its impact on the news business. Veteran CNN reporter Jessica Yellen joins us to talk about her new Instagram-based news service and how the virus is changing the way the news is produced. Plus, our first ever Zoom party. And I uh, couldn't be more thrilled. (laughs) It's going to be fun. Sure. I will have a fresh bottle of vodka for that one. Exactly. People ask you about it. You know, hey, where in Vietnam did you get this one? Uh, Okay, we'll we'll do it. And now... Are you hearing something by any chance? No. Sure there's nothing coming through on my side? Because I've got the cure playing here. I'm trying to... I'm not hearing the cure. Oh, good. That's good. Is is there any way to stop the cure from playing? As as much as I enjoy Robert Smith. Uh, Type command period or escape. Okay, yes. There. Did I ever tell you my Robert Smith story? 
You have one? I have a Robert Smith story. Okay. I got uh, third row left seats for one of the Cure tours. And it was they were amazing seats. Had a fantastic time. And as you know, usually the first couple of rows are reserved for big shots and giveaways and stuff. And often they're empty. Uh for the at least the beginning of, of any given concert and so because we had gotten really great comp seats there i was with you know five of my friends and we were having a fantastic time and out of nowhere a guy from the nosebleed seats decides i'm gonna go down and, and right up to the front after all i can see from here that the seats are empty and he comes down and i suddenly see somebody over to my left that hadn't been there previously because again, we're in the comp section and the seats are mostly empty. I turn and look at him and he is dressed head to toe, exactly like Robert Smith. Robert Smith's up on stage and he's working both sides and he comes over to our side. And I can only imagine at that height with the lights and all that kind of stuff, you don't get to see more than three or four rows back anyway. No. He makes eye contact with me. With you? With me. I'm like, oh my God, he's made eye contact with me. He looks over at the guy beside me who is dressed head to toe, just like Robert Smith, stone still like a statue, staring up at his idol. And Robert looks at him, looks back at me, looks back at this guy again, looks at me, shrugs his shoulders at me like, get a lot of that guy. <laughs> I actually had a moment with my teenage idol, Robert Smith. Okay, do you want to hear mine? Um, a number of years ago, I think this was for, oh, God, it, it was a Cure album around 2004, 2005. And I was asked, do I want to go to London? to interview Robert Smith. Absolutely. So I get on a plane, fly into Gatwick, and I am told that, uh, yes, tomorrow, when I call the record company, tomorrow at 2 o'clock, you are going to go to this hotel at Gatwick Airport, which is near Crowley, which is where he lives, and uh, you will have an hour to talk, talk about this. Uh, this is the Blood Flowers album. You'll have an album, uh, an hour to talk to him about this this record. I go, great. Okay, we'll see you at the Hilton at Gatwick at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. And the record company person goes, uh, no. See, Robert works from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> so this interview will be at 2 a.m. tomorrow. Awesome. Uh, uh, okay, so I get on the Gatwick Express, I go out to the Hilton, I'm waiting for my chance to go into a suite to talk to him. I'm escorted down the hall, the door opens, door closes behind me, and there's nothing in this suite except one bare light bulb. And it's <clears throat> dead quiet, it's about 3 o'clock in the morning by this point. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Who's interrogating who? Then, from the kitchen part of the suite... This thing shuffles out with full makeup, giant hair, high top running shoes, unlaced, of course, and a Queens Park Rangers jersey. <clears throat> he shuffles over to me and he extends his hand and he says, Hello, I'm Robert. <laughs> 
To which I responded, no shit. Yeah, right. So we had a very good talk. Did you see that red carpet video of the, the ditzy entertainment reporter who is clearly way more excited? Yes, yes, yes. Hey, how are you? I'm Carrie. Oh, okay. It's so nice to meet you. Hi. Congratulations, the Cure Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees 2019. Are you as excited as I am? Um, by the sounds of it, no. <laughs> Want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats swag store. I'm worried about the impact COVID-19 is having on journalism. And you know, your wife spent how many years oh, in, in news radio? 30, 32, 33 my wife's been 24. You know, I, I was in television news for a, a long time. It's, the thing is, is that on one hand, the industry is stepping up, but it's also suffering a crash in revenue right now, and revenue that was already bare bones. And the bean counter is inevitably saying, you know, it's time to hand out more pink slips. Jessica Yellen is a veteran news reporter, most known for her work on CNN. She recently launched News Not Noise on Instagram, and in April of last year, released a book titled Savage News about uh, a woman navigating the news business in the era of Me Too. She joins us now. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Are you as concerned about the double-edged sword that COVID is proving to be for the industry? I think there are many businesses in this country who are suffering because of COVID, and the media is one of them in terms of revenue. On the other hand, it is, you know, salad days for media in terms of material to coverage to cover, and there's an enormous audience appetite. So there's this tension in the media space where there's still a demand for the product. It's just the traditional way of monetizing it is being squeezed right now. Well, no kidding. Uh, we are looking at some numerous numbers, which are our rating system for radio and television here in Canada. Uh, they are way, way up for radio, especially news radio. But revenues are way, way down. We haven't seen audiences like this for, for radio in Canada in years but at the same time, there's a crisis when it comes to revenue because nobody's buying ad time. Right. Look, it's, in a, it's accelerating a trend that we've seen evolving um, for a while now. You mentioned I was at CNN. Now I do the news on Instagram at my handle, at Jessica Yellen. And one of the you know realities of the future is I think more people will be, frankly, doing what I do. I don't know that in the future we're all going to work inside massive institutional news organizations that rely on big brands to buy ads. One of the protections about the future is that we will be more independent journalists who are supported by their audience or maybe little clusters of journalists. And this could be accelerating that trend. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because when I walked away from a steady anchoring gig in cable news two years ago, I walked away from a newsroom where for every person sitting in a chair, there were literally three empty seats around them because of just the wave after wave of pink slips that occurred. And as I walked out, I had said to a, a former colleague, I said, just you wait, someone upstairs is going to look at this newsroom and say, why do you need all this space when clearly you have a, a much smaller group of people working with you than you had ever had before. And then, of course, COVID-19 comes along and pretty much anybody who was working in that newsroom who didn't have to push a button in a control room ended up working from home. And I can only imagine that the bean counters are going to say, we need to consolidate. We need to reduce the floor space 
And my concern is, is that that has a long-term negative effect on an industry that's accustomed to out of sight, out of mind. When a big story breaks, the boss comes out of the newsroom, out of his office and points at someone and says, you, and if there's nobody to point to, we're going to have to change the way that manager manages. I would say, yes, you know, the future is not going to like, we're not going to back to the way things were. And I think one way that's true is um, it's entirely feasible that we don't all work inside newsrooms, but we're working from home or where we are on the go. And frankly, I was at CNN and that was the case for many of us anyway. During the campaign season, you're almost never at the bureau. You're somewhere out there uploading your video into a link to a thing, you know. The sign of a good reporter is they're never in the newsroom. Correct. Now, there has been a trend lately to keep people more in the newsroom so you can put them on panels because that's actually cheaper than keeping them in the field. So in a way, devolving everybody out to their own independence, either you're in the field and in your home reporting for a network or you're independent, isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, I come at these conversations from a slightly different point of view, which is not, it's so sad it's not going to be the way it was. It's like, we have to deal with the reality and the hand we're dealt. Things are different. How do we make that excellent? And I think that our future is going to be different in the way you're talking about. And we just have to think about the ways to make that excellent and successful and monetizable. Well, when we go to radio newsrooms, and this is where my expertise and experience lies, Radio newsrooms had shrunk into almost nothing as it, as it is. Uh, we relied on newspapers because newspapers still had a roster of reporters who would go out. And do the actual journalism. Do the actual journalism. And because they were coming from a reputable news outlet, people returned their calls. They were able to do the investigative stuff. They were able to uncover the stories over a long period of time and write long-form uh, print to bring the story home. And I, and I think about all the things that have been uncovered by news reporters over the last 20, 25 years. Um, how do you square that kind of deep pocket journalism and this ability to allow people to uncover these stories that a regular person or an independent person couldn't possibly do uh, with where we're going? I'll say two things about that. One is... Um I still think that major institutions like the New York Times and the Washington Post, which are funded by deep-pocketed families or individuals, will still be there to do that kind of work. Second, we're seeing a trend um, to nonprofit investigative journalism that's supported by donors and, and foundations. So a lot of the investigative work, you know, even in print in the U.S. at least, is through ProPublica, um, The Intercept, organizations that rely not necessarily on ads to succeed. That might be a trend in the future. And I would um, slightly disagree with you on the argument that you need to be part of a major institution to break news stories. I think often being independent allows you to be wily, have access in a different way, get in. Um, You might not like, you know, what BuzzFeed News has done, but BuzzFeed News has broken a lot of investigative pieces as a, you know, back in the day as a startup from New York City covering the White House. Maggie Haberman covers the White House from New York. You don't have to be in present to do journalism always. Um, And being independent, I just would dispute the, you know, assumption that you have to be part of a major organization to get access. You need to be a part of a well-funded some entity to do long form investigations because you need to sustain yourself while you're on the story. 
Well, let's talk a little more shop then in that case, because I am lamenting to a degree the death of the traditional newsroom, not necessarily because um, I think that that was the best method of distributing, of of generating news and, and distributing it, but because it was an excellent opportunity to mentor the next generation of journalists. And when we all work from home, the opportunities to sort of walk over to somebody else's desk, point at something and go, listen, if you did it this way, this is what you would end up doing. And all of those little tricks and tips of the trade that you only gather over the course of your your career. When we all find ourselves working from home, we don't really have that to the same degree. And in a similar fashion, whether you're in a large organization or a small one, the, the, the upstart journalists, to your point, who don't work for a large organization, who maybe they work for themselves, maybe they've decided, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, yes, I agree with you that you don't need to have the, the, that big name behind you, because by and large, that big name opens doors that aren't really valuable in the first place. Right. Um, no, nobody actually gets anything out of the president of the United States when they ask a question, but only the top tier journalists get to ask the question in the first place. So if you don't get to ask Donald Trump a question, really, is that going to change anything? Anyway, true journalism doesn't take place at that level. It's uh, who was it who said it's basically um, stenography right. at that point? Um, but where, how do we ensure that we build that next generation of journalists when we don't have a communal place in which to raise them? I think this is a lament about change in our work life across industries. It is true in journalism, but it's also true of my lawyer friends, my you know graphic designer, tech friends who are now working from home and realize in the future they'll probably continue to do that. The thing, and and I'm like a little ahead of the curve because I've been working from home for a little while now. And the thing that I do miss the most is exactly what you're saying, the interaction with my colleagues. When I could pop into the office next door and say to somebody like Gloria Borger, what do you think about this? I'm thinking of pursuing this, but do you think I should call that one? And she's like, why don't, you know, and then like, why don't you try this? Or you, you have that person to bounce ideas off of. But we're all going to miss that as our life changes, because many people won't be going back to an office, not regularly. And so I think we'll develop alternative networks. So, for example, when I do the news, you know, on Instagram, there are people who are editors I've worked with in my past, producers, other journalists, and I'll message them and say, can you talk? I want to talk about something. I'm trying to decide what story to do today and how to frame it. So you create your own newsroom or your own office environment digitally or at a distance. It's not what it was, and we lose a lot because of that, Um, but it's our new reality, and maybe we gain things. What do we gain? Independence. I mean, I don't have to do a story my boss wants me to do any day. I do the story I want to do that I think is news and matters, and I get to say it the way I want to say it. And that freedom is the most exciting, liberating thing, and it's also the most terrifying, exhausting thing. How about competition? I mean, when you have a newsroom, you got a lot of people going, not at each other, but they're all going for the big story or they're trying to, you know, get the byline. They're trying to get the front page. They're trying to get, you know, top of the lineup. Um, there's that. And then there's the, the, you know, the dark humor that is part of every single newsroom. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want anybody from HR going through my mailbox. Oh, ab- absolutely not. And it's 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 on all sides. I mean, it's just it was it's just how you deal with bad news all the time. I mean, I have that dark humor in my chats all day every day. And um I mean, 
I think there's still enormous competition among independent journalists because you still have to survive. So you're scrappy and hungry to do your thing. I mean, one of the, I'm not the kind of journalist who wants to be the, like, I don't really care if I break the fact that so-and-so is picking so-and-so as the vice president a half second before somebody else does. To me, that's not the most interesting form of journalism. And I think oftentimes when there's a lot of like group competition, it can come down to that. Like who's the first to get the same thing we're all getting. Right. All right. So let me ask you this. What are you competing for now? I'm competing to win an audience that wants the kind of information I'm providing in a way I'm saying it. I mean, my personal mission is I believe the way that news and especially TV news is told in the U.S. and increasingly in other places leaves a huge chunk of the audience out of the conversation. It is so bells and whistles combat. It's about rage and outrage and negativity and partisanship and shouting pundits. And there are a lot of people who would like to know what happened today and what really mattered without all that noise. I wonder, too, about the effect of advertisers. There is not a national news uh, outlet in the U.S. that does not accept advertising from Big Pharma. And now that we're getting into the nitty-gritty of epidemiology and everything that could happen going forward with, with medical treatment, uh, there is, and, and with revenues going down and with the Big Pharma ads being a steady source of income, do you see the problem? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a good point. I haven't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you can imagine a scenario in which the news is covering sort of four vaccines that are in competition to be the one that gets a big government contract. And, you know, two of them are advertising on the network and two aren't. How does that impact the coverage? Yeah. Johnson, Johnson and Johnson, you know, has a big multi-million dollar ad buy every year. Uh, Gilead does not. Right. But these kinds of problems have been journalistic integrity issues in newsrooms, you know, since advertising started to fund things. And we sort of turned the business model on its head from we use entertainment revenue to fund the newsroom because news is a value to society. And that's ultimately why we're broadcasting in the first place to no news has to pay its own way. Tell me about the new revenue model for you. Like, for, for example, you are a unique situation. You walked away from a, a mainstream media environment and and as did I. And, and the question that I always get is the question I'm going to ask you, too. How are you monetizing this? So I've been focusing on growing the audience, but my next move will be to go on Patreon. I've been working on, you know, do you, but to have the audience support it in part and then form partnerships with other organizations that do content and, you know, create content for them. Um, there's always a possibility, you know, you always look for brand par partners. I believe in a, I think you do need a combination of those things still. Um, and I like the podcast model, which is, you know, podcasts are much more transparent than TV news is, right? TV news, you do the news and then you cut to these commercials and then you come back. But in podcasts, you're just sort of like, Hey guys, this is who's paying the bill. Thank you to them. I'm going to tell you about them. Thanks for paying the bill. I like that kind of transparency because you're very clear to the audience why you're doing this and your relationship with them. Um, and I kind of think that is the model for more independent forms of journalism too, when you're taking money from big organizations, brands, et cetera, as opposed to from the audience. 
So then what about the second issue that you get to address directly because you are now in charge of your own destiny? It, one of my big laments was being hauled into the boss's office for saying something that led to a complaint. And it was inevitable that it was only one complaint. And my point had always been that you're asking me to stop doing something that 99.997% of the audience likes because one person said they didn't like it. You don't have to deal with that noise insofar as somebody telling you what you can and can't do. But you have stepped into a different world of noise where you've got the audience not only responding to you, but anybody with two fingers and a keyboard is responding to you as well. So you've stepped right into the signal to noise ratio. <laughs> it's worse, not better for you. Well, first, I got a very thick skin at CNN because when you report politics on TV, you're angering somebody every day. And, you know, I was there right when Twitter emerged. And that's <laughs> when people were it was so fresh and new. All these people thought like, oh, now here's my voice. And the kind of things that come out, you are crazy. So I kind of learned how to develop a relationship to what comes in. And I do have people I work with who constantly remind me, they say like, don't respond to that one. Don't respond. Hold your, just don't respond. Ignore it. Don't feed the trolls. Right. So I still grapple with that because you want to be like, well, blah, 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 blah. But it's also amazing to have that interaction with the audience. And that's, I always place that as the higher value. So it used to be the case that I'd work all day on a piece, go on TV. And then I don't know how it went. Like, did viewers get it? Did they learn something? Did it, you know, enlighten them? And now you do a piece and with social media, you immediately get response. That's like, I didn't know what that word meant, or I don't understand this part, or thank you for that. I had no idea. What can I do about, you know, this engagement is really gratifying. And I think it makes me more useful as a journalist. You don't want to drive your journalism based on what the audience believes, but getting their feedback about what they're curious about, what's confusing, helps you be a more effective communicator. And I really value that. Well, that's a, that's a huge risk. You know, like, do you remember the first time a screen went into your newsroom that had real-time stats on people's reaction to articles on the website? Right. I, like the number of times I'd have someone come up to me and say, hey, that thing's really blowing up on the web. We need to do more of that thing. Right. I'm like, well, that was yesterday's thing. We should be looking for new things to be doing every day. Not just more of the same because that's what somebody likes. Right. Now, now you, you have, have to address, address that. that yourself because you, you're looking at the analytics. You know what people are responding to. Yes. Sometimes I think it's almost as much about your tone when you cover the story and your approach to the story as it is about story choice. But, for example, lately there's less interest in politics and more in, you know, or there was a huge amount of interest in COVID at first, but like, what is the virus? How does it work? What do we know? And then all of a sudden people did not want to hear about that. They want to hear about you know, how do you handle anxiety and uncertainty? How do you make decisions in the face of uncertainty? And then now it's about the economy. And so you kind of, you know, the story changes and I can see that in the analytics, but you still have to do the news. Like my whole brand is I'm cutting out what's noisy and just telling you what actually matters. So sometimes it's just very obvious what actually matters and you just have to do that story. In other words, don't pander, follow the story. Try to do the story in a way though that meets meets the audience where their need is. 
how do we tell the good guys, people like you, from the bad guys who may be working for the Internet Research Institute in St. Petersburg? I believe that some of that will be exposed. In other words, we'll develop ways of investigating who is telling us our information. And some of it will be preference. Like, there are a lot of independent voices out there who have huge followings. You can think of people who are, you know, pundits with podcasts and digital shows who spew all kinds of stuff and people believe them. And maybe there is no way to check that. I, I'm inundated every day with people who say to me, well, I don't trust news organization X that you and I think of as the good guys, right? Oh, major institute. You still listen to major. People ask me, where do I go for news? And among my sources are the major news organizations. Oh, you trust those people. So there's widespread mistrust in general. And we're living in a time when what you think is a good guy might be somebody else's bad guy. And we don't have shared standards anymore. And I don't know if we can police that, but people have to make judgments for themselves. I'm firmly in the camp that believes that the the devolution of political discourse is largely on Fox News and Republicans at large um, who have created that environment. But the the way we mend that relationship between the media and its distrust uh, with the by, by the public is not by the media. It's by politicians. It's up to the political discourse to improve between both sides of that aisle before we can actually begin to mend the relationship that the media has with the public. What are your thoughts on that? I think everybody bears some responsibility. I mean, I think that the media has assumes the political media here, at least, believes that conflict is the basis of good storytelling in politics. So the way stories were framed going back quite a while now is about one side versus the other in a titanic battle, bring the heat, make the stakes as high as possible. If you were to book somebody who's a real consensus voice, somebody who's a moderate, that was devalued. So I think that that trend in the media also accelerated politicians' instincts to be even more combative and extreme because that's what got them attention and play. And now they're at odds and highly partisan and combative attacking the media and the media doesn't like it. But the media was part of cooking this stew to begin with also. I think it takes a massive cultural shift in a shift in public values too. And we're kind of at the, I don't know if we're at the precipice of it. We might be in the beginning stages of that. Do you think COVID actually will give us an opportunity to reveal how party over country does more damage and literally has killed people? Do you think that we're now at the point where COVID will reveal that to the public at large and recognize that if we don't stop attacking each other, we're never going to be able to conquer an external threat like this? There's a good chance COVID will make people believe or realize that what we've been doing in a lot of ways, in a lot of different spaces, hasn't been working. And we need a radical shift to have like a healthier, more productive Um, future that, you know, creates a livable life for more people. And that's true in our political discourse. It's true in this country, how we provide health care. There's all sorts of ways that's true. Okay. Plug your book. Oh, no, I want to plug my Instagram. (laughs) Please follow me at Jessica Yellen, Y-E-L-L-I-N, and check out, see if you like the way I do news independent. My book's called Savage News. You can buy it on Amazon. Amazon. 
Thanks. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks, you guys. Really fun to talk to you. Jessica Yellen, uh, formerly of CNN and the brains behind News Not Noise on Instagram. And if you're looking for her book, it was released in April of 2019, titled Savage News. Thanks, you guys. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. A big friend of the show, uh, Chef Mike Benninger, has launched Halton's Tech for Teens. He did that a few years back, you may recall. And uh, he's reporting that they delivered 43 units of donated laptops for kids in need in Halton region in Ontario. That's fantastic. Right, because not everyone's going to be able to do this uh, COVID-19 distance learning in school. That's a that's a big problem. The assum- the assumption is that a lot of people have broadband and they have computers that can actually keep up with whatever the lesson planners send down the the pipe. And the the opportunity to have uh, good computers in front of kids who need them fantastic. We got the email from the Toronto District School Board saying we're going to be doing this online learning. Could you please fill out this survey so we know whether or not you know, you're going to be okay? I hit the one button for the fill out the survey. Question one was, do you have a laptop or an iPad or some similar device that your child could use? Note a smartphone is insufficient. And I went, yeah, absolutely. Click. And it went, thank you. That was all they asked of me. But I can imagine if I clicked no, there would have been a lot more questions. As a matter of fact, um, what uh, Mike Benninger was pointing out was that the Ontario government is distributing something like 21,000 iPads by various school boards across the province for students who don't have a screen. And his point was you could probably have done 200,000 units if you had gone with Google Chromebooks instead of iPads. That's very true. Very true. But um, if you have a device sitting in a closet somewhere that you don't use anymore that could be donated, go to Geeks and Beats uh, Facebook page. We've got a a link that we've reshared or just type in Halton Tech for Teens if you've got something and you want to be able to help out. Uh, Over on the uh, in the newsroom, uh, Shane Alexander, one of our ace segment producers, had suggested that we all get together and have like a newsroom Zoom drinks fest and like. Nobody but Krista replied. <laughs> well, a little awkward. Uh, really, nobody wanted to get together. I've got a fancy new Zoom Zoom account. Um, neither you nor I replied either. Oh, that's true. Um, so I wonder if maybe they were just want, waiting for the bosses oh, to say something. Maybe, yeah, okay. But uh, yeah, the entire team was like, um, "Yeah, Shane, <laughs> you can have your own drink by yourself <laughs> with Krista, I guess." Um, So here's what I was thinking. The reason why we didn't get a response from like the 300 people who work behind the scenes here is that um, there was no reason behind it other than just for the sake of doing it. So what I'm thinking is we should open it up not only to the newsroom staff, but to all of the interns. Okay. You don't seem so keen on this one. No, no, I'm I'm up for it. I did a, a Zoom thing last week. And I ended up getting like 34 people in the window, which was weird. Yeah, so I, I figured maybe we'll get something like that. I can't imagine a lot of people are going to want to come and hang out, but there'll be opportunities to ask you questions and, you know, stuff like that. So if you would like to support the show, become a member of the World's Worst Intern Program by going to geeksandbeats.com. 
click the support the show link and via Patreon, that's how you become a, a member. And for a dollar, you pay us a dollar an episode. That's what makes it the world's worst intern program. You actually pay us to work on the show. Don't do any actual work. And all we do is say thank you. And so I figure maybe we should start doing more for the interns like this Zoom thing. So only for the interns. Okay. That might be an incentive. <laughs> or it might not be. All right, we've got a plan then. So Sunday, May 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern time, there will be a Zoom call drinks fest just for members of the World's Worst Intern program. You will get an email if you go to the Patreon page. Go to geeksandbeats.com, click on the support the show link. Right. Awesome. Sounds like a plan. Okay. You sound thrilled. Yeah. You know me and crowds. They're virtual crowds. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm way ahead of the curve. Just you wait. You're going to get virtually flashed by a fan. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.